Welcome to the Leaders Brief by Egomonk. Today we will be examining how China's role in the Pacific Ocean and Ladakh is paving way for stronger Indo-Australian ties, decoding the economic crisis in Yemen, and discussing Dubai's road to recovery after a 3.5% COVID-induced decline to its economy. Principally, there are three issues that we're seeking to to take out. That is a, a further elevation of the relationship. Secondly, uh, committing to greater cooperation in uh, in the post-COVID world, particularly. Uh, in that Indo-Pacific that we uh, that we share, uh, and uh, above all, uh, realising the great ambition, if you like, of the Australia-India relationship, which is uh, delivering uh, security and stability uh, to the Indo-Pacific. Barry O'Farrell, High Commissioner-designate of Australia to India, had opined in an interview with ORF President Samir Saran before Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison met his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi at a virtual summit on June 4th. Apart from signing the Australia-India Mutual Logistics Support Arrangement and the Defence, Science and Technology Implementing Arrangement, the summit saw several positive developments for bilateral trade as part of an Australia-India Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. India and Australia have been discussing to develop a comprehensive economic cooperation agreement since 2011, but it has stalled on several occasions since then. Political analysts believe that the recent bilateral summit between the two countries is being influenced by China's actions on the Indochina border and the Pacific Ocean. The highlight of the June 4th summit was the Mutual Logistics Support Agreement, which allows both countries to use each other's military bases. There have been several skirmishes with China along the line of actual control, with the last one killing as many as 20 Indian soldiers at the Ladakh border. In retaliation, India has started working towards decreasing trade dependency on China, looking to boost local manufacturing and attracting investments from other countries. For Australia, the Chinese show of force on the Pacific Ocean and its reputation to economically coerce poorer countries by helping them develop through its Belt and Road Initiative has been a matter of constant concern. Apart from having a strategic military partnership, both India and Australia hope to boost trade on the innovation and technology front, in which China presently enjoys global dominance. The partnership could cater towards an Indian economic strategy to 2035, a report developed by the Australian government. Canberra hopes to export more goods and services, including in education, agriculture, energy, resources, tourism, healthcare, financial services, infrastructure, science and innovation, and sport to India. A critical obstacle between Indo-Australia ties is Canberra's dependency on Beijing for its exports. Australia exported about a third of its goods directly to China at the tune of $87 billion in 2018. Furthermore, Australia also imposed the largest amount of goods from China. However, with trade practices set to evolve drastically in a post-COVID world, investors can look forward to increasing trade and cooperation between India and Australia. Rare earth minerals, which are an important component of technology development and entirely dominated by China, can be one front that the two countries would partner to explore. While the COVID situation has caused severe damage to all countries across the world, one of the worst affected remains Yemen, which has seen several phases of famine since 2016. Presently, the United Nations estimates that over 350,000 malnourished children are battling death. People across Yemen have been speaking out forcefully to demand peace. And in response to that, I shared with the government of Yemen, the distinguished ambassador here, and Ansarala at the end of March draft agreements on, firstly, a nationwide ceasefire, secondly, humanitarian and economic measures, and thirdly, the urgent resumption of the political process. I have been engaged in intensive negotiations with the parties, identifying and building on points of convergence and, of course, proposing compromised, compromised texts 
where differences remain. I'm pleased to report that we have seen significant progress on these negotiations, in particular with respect to the national nationwide ceasefire. Martin Griffiths, Special Envoy of the Secretary-General for Yemen, had said, Though several countries pledged $1.35 billion for aid operations in Yemen this year, the commitment is much lower than the $2.4 billion the UN had requested. Saudi Arabia, which has considerable political sway in the region, pledged $500 million in aid for Yemen. However, Kuwait and the UAE, who had joined Saudi in pledging $1.5 billion last year, did not offer any amount in aid this year. Yemen's growing humanitarian crisis, coupled with a failure to its health infrastructure, poses a significant threat to neighboring countries and increases difficulties in eradicating COVID-19 from the region. Apart from several deaths, the situation will also hamper economic recovery post-COVID for all West Asian countries. The UAE, which supports Saudi in supplying troops to Yemen to fight the Houthi rebels, has seen the economy of its most important emirate, Dubai, drop by 3.5%. Recently, Dubai has decided to gradually open its border to tourists, with Emirates deciding to start operating special passenger flights. First of all, um, I have to say uh, to those affected, the friends and family stranded in many parts of the world, you know, our thoughts and prayers are to all of them. And I have to thank our frontline workers who are doing an amazing job to keep us all safe in the city. Um, you know, when it comes to tourism, I kind of look at it as three phases, very similar to how we are today. Phase one, you know, cu- currently I think tourism is definitely on pause. And I see that uh, continuing for at least a couple of months. Uh, after that, um, in the new sort of COVID era of reopening, I see sort of a staggered approach and somewhat tentative approach across the world as different countries get things under control and people start to travel. Now, I don't really see this as yeah. open tourism. It's more sort of necessity to travel, maybe going to see their family and friends. Mm-hmm. And then sort of we'll go back to a sort of post-COVID nor- normalcy where we kind of have a full reopening and more of a confidence. Dubai's Department of Tourism and Commerce Director General, Hilal Almari, had told Bloomberg, Dubai had seen a footfall of 16.7 million tourists in 2019, contributing $27 billion, or approximately 11.5% of its GDP. Although it plans to start its recovery through tourism, COVID is forcing the tourism and hospitality industry to reorganize itself. However, Dubai is hopeful to see a rapid increase in its economy after tourists start coming in. Thank you for listening. Tune in to Egomong to stay updated on the latest happenings and the impact on global trade, technology and innovation. Egomong helps you make sense of change. We are a global intelligence platform delivering asymmetric outcomes by bringing organizations closer to the communities they want to serve and the leaders they wish to influence. Visit our website insights.egomong.com that is i-n-s-i-g-h-t-s dot e-g-o-m-o-n-k dot com to subscribe and make better and faster decisions today. If you wish to collaborate with us, then please email us at contact at egomonk.com.